Father, I just thank you so much. It is with you that we have to do. I thank you, Father, that we're not under the scrutiny of one another or of the world, but it's under your eye that we stand. Father, we know that the world despises us. We know that our own hearts at times condemn us. But, Father, we thank you. You are greater than our hearts. And I do think, thank you for those wonderful words that say there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you. That's your first and last word on the whole issue. There is no condemnation now. Father, we thank you that no matter what our past has been, no matter what our present is, what our future will be, you stand by your word that there is now forgiveness for those who are sinners saved by grace. Hallelujah. We thank you we are the redeemed and you say let the redeemed say so. We say so this morning to every angel, to every force that will come against us, to every gainsayer. We are the redeemed of the Lord. It is God who is the strength of our life. It is God who gives us a good reputation. Hallelujah. It is God who wipes the slate completely clean. And we stand before you now in the grace that is new every morning. New every morning is thy mercy. Hallelujah. Oh, Father, I just praise and thank you for that wonderful mercy that our brother spoke about earlier, Lord, the freshness of your grace this morning. And Father, I would ask in the name of Jesus that your enabling power is going to come upon me and upon those who hear me. That, Father, I should be able to speak, but those who hear should be able to hear and to listen. And we will pray, Father, for us all that we should hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to the church. Father, just come and take my inadequate mouth. And Father, may it just be a channel of blessing for yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. Now, it's a good title, isn't it? How to believe what you believe and live in the good of it. How to know what you know and live in the good of it. I can't think, actually, of a better title. The funny thing is, of course, it's an obvious title in one sense. And, uh, you know, and it, it's axiomatic. For if you believe what you believe and know what you know, you will automatically live in the good of it. But if you don't believe what you believe and you don't know what you know, then, then no matter what you do, you will not be able to live in the good of the thing. And I have to tell you today, and I speak from great experience as I travel around this country, I meet more and more and more and more believers who are having trouble in their life because quite honestly, they don't believe the things they say they believe. And as a result, they are pushed around by the devil, they're kicked around by every demonic force, they're up and down, they're unstable, they live on this sort of tightrope existence. I, I don't know, should I do this, should I do that? They really are at sea in most of their lives. And I find this absolutely uh, pathetic, really, when God has provided so much that they should live on that type of level, yet the majority try and do it. And I know it's possible to be truly born again, to be truly baptized in the Holy Spirit, and yet still to have a shallow experience of God and a shallow faith. And what we've got to understand is this, that is not God's purpose for we as Christians or for his church. God's purpose is this, we are saved to come into something. Praise God. We aren't just saved, we're saved to come into something. And the tragedy with so many Christians is they're, they're living in the doorway of their faith. You see, they've just about got the door closed and they stay there. There's a whole palace ahead of them full of glories and they're stuck by the door saying, isn't it great to be saved? It's a bit drafty, but isn't it great to be saved? You see, and they live on that sort of level. 
God doesn't want us living on that level. That is shallow Christianity. You know, they're babes in Christ. He wants us to come through and to enjoy that which is opened up through salvation. The devil doesn't want it. The devil opposes that. The devil wants to stop people coming into this. And so some people think they know something and they think they believe something, but the truth is it's so shallow that they don't really actually know it or believe it. Of course, the devil's at work. I wonder if we, this morning we could start with a very interesting little passage. I'm only going to read a few verses of this, very well known. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13, where we have Jesus speaking in parables. And you'll remember the famous parable is, of course, the first one in Matthew chapter 13, the sower and his seed. And you know there are four cases here, don't you? I can rush through this. All right, there are four. The seed falls on hardened ground, right? Then you have, uh, and that's the non-Christian. Then all the rest are Christian experiences. You've got stony places and then the place with weeds. Do you remember that? The grow up thorns. And then you've got the good soil. Now, you've got to know this parable. This is the base parable. You can't understand the other parables unless you understand this parable. So whenever you're reading any parable, always read this one first, and it will open up all the others. Now look what it says. I'll read verse 1. And the same day went Jesus out of the house and sat uh, by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Isn't that wonderful? And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside. And the fowls came and devoured them up. Now that's, I'm going to end just there. Some seed fell by the wayside. This was the place that was well trodden down by all those ramblers and hitchhikers and things. And uh, they trod it so hard that the seed couldn't penetrate. But the seed was scattered on it in great abundance. And it just lay on the surface. And before long, the birds of the air came. It didn't just lie there. The birds of the air came and they took it away. Now, Jesus interprets this. Now, look at the interpretation. This is important. This is the, the unbeliever in this case. Verse 18. Hear ye, therefore, the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not. Do you see that little phrase? And they, they don't comprehend it. Then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. Now, isn't that fascinating? Here is the interpretation of the parable. The word goes forth, in this case, the word of the kingdom. The word goes forth. The ground is hardened so that, quite honestly, the person doesn't want to understand it and doesn't understand it. As a result, it doesn't penetrate them. And it's not just left there. Soon, the evil one himself or one of his demons comes and steals away the word. Now, isn't that interesting? And beloved, I have to tell you this, that although this is talking about unbelievers, the same is true of believers. That the word of God comes to them, either through teaching, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of Jesus himself. But it, it's not a question that we just absorb it and that's it. There is then a battle about it. The Holy Spirit wants to illuminate it. The devil wants to snatch it away and take it out of your life. And that's what's happening. And unfortunately, many, many Christians have received the word of God, 
Right? It's actually been taken in. But the devil's come along and snatched it away. So they're left with the imprint. Their beliefs. Do you believe in this? Oh yes, I believe in that. The imprint's there, but they've lost the real substance of the thing. And unfortunately, at first they don't notice that there's a difference. It's only when trouble hits that they really know that they haven't got the real thing. You see? This is happening all the time. And unfortunately, many Christians have this as the norm in their life. I nearly got into this myself. Now, the Christians at university were a pretty spectacular bunch. But they were young. And they had a fairly easy life together. But I was a, a raucous unbeliever, as you know. I'd been someone who had constantly criticized everything that was nonsensical to me. I would say, it's nonsensical. Can't see it. Rubbish. How, how can you be as illogical as that? And so on, you see. Now, suddenly, I'm converted. Wonderful. The, all I knew in those early days was that Jesus was alive. I'd actually experienced the living Christ. I knew that it was true. And I think it was Luther, wasn't it, or Wesley, who said uh, that a man with an experience is not open to reason. And that was true. I knew Christ was alive. I couldn't answer. But I couldn't ever doubt it. Jesus was alive as far as I knew. Now, I began joining with other Christians, and we all believed that Jesus was alive. That was wonderful. I was born again. Knew I was born again. Wonderful. Endless problems up here. But I had no problems in my heart. I really, really knew that these things were true. Now, they said, right, you must start reading your Bible. Oh, why? All Christians read their Bibles. Oh, I see. Right, okay. And I got a Bible, and King James, of course, and uh, knew no other. And I started reading it. Now, with most books, you start reading from the beginning, don't you? I mean, if you pick up a Dickens or an Agatha Christie, well, Agatha Christie, you read the last chapter first, but I mean... <laughs> Generally speaking, you don't begin at chapter 14, do you? And uh, so I thought, well, I'll start reading it. Now, I was studying geography, geology, evolution at the time. Now, I started reading Genesis. I'd never read so much rubbish in my life. <laughs> I opened it up and I looked at it. I thought, this is pathetic. I mean, really, how can anyone believe this? I mean, it was terrible. And I went to my Christian friends and I said, what is this book? I mean, it's nonsense. And I said, it just doesn't hold water. They said this to me. They said, Roger, you don't have to understand it. You've just got to believe it. And I thought, hello. You know, I thought the, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, Moonies, that sort of uh, thing, brainwashing going on. I said, well, what do you mean? I mean, it's nonsense. It's absolute rubbish, this book. And they said, keep reading it. You know, the Holy Spirit will help you. So I read on Noah's Ark. Dear, dear, I hadn't read that since I was a little boy, you know. Oh, pathetic. And so it went on. And and then I thought, well, what do I do? And someone suddenly tweeted, hey, what are you reading Genesis for? Why don't you read the Gospels? Well, I started to read the Gospels. I found them very difficult. I found lots and lots of things that I didn't understand. The reaction with the Christians was this. Look, receive it by faith. No need to look into it. Don't use your mind. You've just got to receive it as the word of God. Now, what they were trying to give me was a shallow pap, really. A shallow Christianity, which unfortunately doesn't stand the test of time. It doesn't. I found that the church I went to, he was doing a series on Matthew. You see, verse by verse, so he said, on Matthew. In fact, it wasn't. It was area by area, you know. And uh, there were certain verses I found very difficult in Matthew. I really did. I could receive some of these things, but others I found extremely hard. And uh, I always used to wait for the particular verse. Oh, this verse is coming. He that endures to the end shall be saved. You know? Oh, now that's terribly difficult. I couldn't wait for him to... And do you know what the fellow did? He would do a section up to the verse that I 
wanted to know about. And I used to say, good, next week we're going to be on it. And next week he used to start the next section, which was after the verse that I wanted to understand. They never actually dealt with the verses that I understood. And this was the sort of shallow experience that I had. I began then to have major doubts, you know. And I used to go through the Bible and put crosses against passages that I couldn't believe, that were rubbish, and ticks against passages that uh, I could accept, you see. And, uh, of course, the, you know full well, the first passage I ever found that I could accept was uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. But then I began to realize this gave me a problem, you see. And I think I've dealt with this on my Word of God tapes. But this did give me a problem because... I suddenly realized what I was doing. Instead of the word of God being the authority, I was the authority. If a passage seemed right to me, it was right. If it seemed wrong to me, it was wrong. And then there was a whole group of passages, and I didn't know whether they were right or wrong. So I was the big God here. I was the big white chief, and I would decide what was right in this word and what wasn't right in the word. And suddenly I realized, you know, when I trusted myself, my life had been a shambles. And now apparently I was doing it as a Christian. And then I twigged. Either the whole word has to be right, or it's all wrong, and nothing but nice stories. You can't have anything in between that, because otherwise you're making the decision about it. And so I thought, well, I do know certain passages are definitely right. And I decided then, very well, I will take the word of God as correct. I announced it at the... the uh, college meeting, you know, I said, um, well, I've decided today that I'm going to take the word of God, you know, as it stands. And they were mightily relieved. They thought that meant that I would stop questioning and thinking about it. But that's not the case. God said this to me. He said, your mind is either your friend or your enemy. Either your mind will constantly trip you up or it will be your friend and it will strengthen your faith. And he showed me I must never be intellectually dishonest. If I don't understand something, I must ask him, Right. Do you know I prayed for two and a half years to understand the word of God? Really did. I found I couldn't remember it. You know? I, I would read an ordinary book. I could remember most of the book. I would read a passage in scripture. I couldn't remember the details. I couldn't remember where it was that I'd been reading. I just read it. And then if someone said to me, oh, what have you been reading? Oh, it was one of the Gospels. Which one was it? Have you had that experience yourself? Try as you might, you can't remember the scriptures. I read the scriptures for about six months and I hardly knew where one passage was. Staggering, you know, and I've, I've got a fairly retentive mind and I just couldn't do it. Do you know what was happening? Why the devil was coming down, stealing the word away. We do experience this, don't we, as Christians? We really do. You, you also experience it like this. Um, you can, when you get up in the morning, you can read the Sunday Times. Or the telegraph, can't you, to your heart's content? You can read the times of the telegraph or the mail. You can go right through the thing. When you then pick up the Bible, suddenly the most utter tiredness comes on you. Have you noticed that that's the case? And before long, you know, oh, funny, Arthur Marshall hadn't sent you to sleep in the Sunday telegraph. Peregrine Worth Thorn. You can read all those. Even uh, Catherine, whatever her name is. You can read all this stuff, you see. But, uh, I mean, the minute you pick up the Word of God, tiredness comes over you. Complete blur. Your eyes seem to go slightly blurred. Why, the devil's doing it. And there's no doubt about it, the devil does not want us living in all that God supplied for us, and he is trying to take it away. And that is why there are many Christians who know and believe, but they don't really know what they know, and they don't really believe what they believe. 
you know, and lack of determination. But beloved, we've got to deal with it. After two and a half years of prayer, I finally, not understanding much in the, in the Bible, just didn't. Oh, I listed all the contradictions I found. I listed them all. And that, you might have said, well, surely that destroys your faith. But the lovely thing about our faith, it's given by the Holy Spirit. It's intuitive within us. That couldn't destroy my faith. I knew that I was saved. But these were definite problems. If I had known as an atheist what I know now, I'd have been very powerful indeed. Right? I could have tripped up most Christians. I could have shown them passages of Scripture and said, explain that. Right? Like this big difficulty about the healing of the blind man. Right? In one gospel it says he's healed as he goes into Jericho. In another gospel it says he's healed as Jesus comes out of Jericho. It's a total contradiction. There's no way that you can make those two things fit. Or is there? Well, there's only one way, which I won't tell you about this morning. Right? But, I mean, that is a total contradiction. I listed all of these things. And at the end of two and a half years, I suddenly had a vision of a field piled high with girders and bricks and pipes and lagging and... All the other things that go into a house, I don't know anything else, that go into a house. And they're all in this heap. And the Lord said this. He said, that's what the Bible's like. It's got everything you need to build a house. Right? But what you mustn't do then is try sorting it out. You know, well, where does this brick go? Oh, a roof tile, where does that go? Because if you do, it will fall to the ground. What you've got to do, first of all, is to build the framework then once you've got the framework, build the next thing, and gradually you'll find that soon everything will fit together absolutely perfectly. You see? And that's what I began to do. And I found this, that as I've gone on, led by the Spirit, my mind has become one of my greatest allies. Praise God. I have seen things that have utterly confirmed my faith, which is wonderful. Most Christians have not reached that place, and that's the tragedy about it. All right, let's, let's just go to John 10, and let's see a similar description to Matthew 13 for the believer. Now, John chapter 10, Johannes 10, and verse 10, which is very, very well known. Now, look what it says. The thief, that's the devil, cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Do you see that? But I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. God wants us to have life. The devil comes to steal that life away. And so, do you see, here we see the positive and the negative. We can have life and life more abundant, but there will be the devil trying to take it away from us. We've got to know what we know, and we've got to believe that which we believe. Actually, by the way, knowing what you know comes under a, a lovely word called epistemology. Have you heard the word epistemology? There are university subjects called epistemological truth and stuff like that. And you can actually join a university to study epistemology. Epistemology is how do we know what we know? I'll tell you something. Every Christian ought to be an epistemological expert. Do you know that? You should. You should know what you know. Most, unfortunately, have a constant epistemological crisis. They don't know why they believe what they believe. Well, they sort of know what they believe. I don't know why I believe it. I don't know what it means to me. It certainly doesn't do anything to me, that little belief. You see? And as a result, they are living impoverished lives. The word to know is very important. Actually, there are three words in Greek for to know. One is to have the knowledge of, gnosis. One is to have a thorough knowledge of, epinosis, epinosis, to know all round, to know everything about it, 
Wonderful. And another one then is a Greek word meaning to know from experience. And I find that's the way we go as Christians. First of all, we receive knowledge. Then the Lord works on us so that we have a thorough knowledge. And then we know it in our experience, which is the end. All of us have got to come into that. And do you know how God leads us into it? Very often it's through crisis in our life that we come into a knowledge of the truth. Funny, isn't it? But God will shake everything that can be shaken. And if there's a faith that we've got, very often it's only after the earthquake that we knew it in our experience that it can survive the earthquake. You need an earthquake, you know, to test whether the building you're in is earthquake-proof. Right? You really do. And it's so wonderful, you see, after every earthquake, all the designers rush around checking their buildings. And sometimes they'll say, proved by this earthquake. They know this building's earthquake-proof. It stood up to such and such. And the confidence of the people who've been in it. Well, I was in this building when the earthquake hit. And I'm still here. It's wonderful, you see. And very often, to know what you know means you have to go through a test or a crisis to check out that you know what you know. And very often when God looks down upon shallow believers, he will take them through a crisis to show them that they don't know what they thought they knew. And they don't really believe what they thought they believed. I have to tell you this, by the way, of my university pals, where they were a very keen bunch at university. But you should see them now. Those who really meant business with God and got into the word of God, these are the ones who today are shining for the Lord. They're stunning in their faith. They all are. Those who were the ones who told me, oh, don't take it too seriously, just believe. Many of them have collapsed, right? You know, they're by the wayside. Or they're nicely religious, but their lives really are as carnal as can be. We cannot play around with this. We've really got to come into a knowledge of these things. It's through the test that you find out what you really know. Through the test. And it's in the test that your faith is tested. You know it says the exception proves the rule. I used to wonder what that's about. I used to say, well, what do you mean the exception proves the rule? Surely the exception breaks the rule. Have you ever wondered about that little phrase? The exception proves the rule. Well, the word prove means to test. And it's the difficult case that really tests whether the rule is right or not. And very often it's when we're in crisis situations that we really come to know really whether our faith is what we thought it was or whether it isn't. Let's check that through. If you go to uh, 1 Peter and chapter 1, I speak from great experience here. <laughs> Praise the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, we all love verse 3 to the first part of verse 6. We love it. This is read very often, and most people say, well, I'll finish there. Halfway through verse 6. Let's read verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. We love this stuff. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice. All right, brothers and sisters, so let's greatly rejoice. But verse 6 doesn't stop there. Right? If you stop in verse 6, you are giving people a, a false Christian experience. There is a time of testing and suffering, you know, when the foundations are shaken in the Christian walk. And it's not to upset you, it's to make you stronger. 
That's what it's about. Look at this, verse 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, if you've got a loose brick that God doesn't like, then there's necessary to shake the house, you know, to let the brick fall out. So he can put a solid one in. If need be, you are in heaviness through manifold testings. At the moment, he says, you're going through tough times. But it's necessary at the moment. Why? For verse 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And what he says is this, you go through the testing so that your faith may begin shining in the crown of God. He doesn't put you through the test so that you can collapse and start weeping and the poor old me syndrome coming up, you know. Well, I don't know. I didn't think it was going to be like... He doesn't do that. It's in the crisis that you really know what you know and you really know what you believe as well. Do you know that? It's when you're going right through it. When you come out the other end, by the way, you're untouchable. You're able to say, well, look, I've been through it. I know it's right. The time you're going through the testing, that's the very time you need your faith. Now, unfortunately, you'll be surrounded with others who don't have the faith for the thing you're in. Oh, Job's comfort, as they're called. I'll deal with those in just a minute. But, you know, but you have got to know what you know. The very time you need your faith, many people are throwing up on their faith. They're giving it up. Oh, well, I don't know anymore. You know, I don't know. We can't act like that. Our faith has to be firmer. By the way, in body ministry, you do have meetings that go badly. You do have meetings that don't seem to touch the stream of God, as if the Holy Spirit forgot to come that morning. So what do you do? Oh, it doesn't work, so we'll go back to the old way. No, you don't. What you do is press on in the thing to come through into glory. Okay? Let's have a look at in Hebrews 10. This is what they were doing, and I feel for these Hebrew Christians. When they were young Christians, they went through a test and they got through it. Now they're more mature, it's a major crisis in their faith. This is what he says. He says, but call to remembrance the former days. Remember, will you please, those former days in which after ye were illuminated, it says in the King James. I love that. You know, you've heard of the Blackpool illuminations. Well, aren't they? they got nothing on the church. We are God's illuminations, all lit up for him. Remember, he says, the former days, after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of afflictions. Don't you remember, he says, all the trouble you went through when you were first saved? Partly, whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly, whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. People were abusing them, shouting at them. The synagogue of Satan was after them, and they stood firm. Then they identified with others who were also similarly abused. They got it in the neck, right? Then he says this, For you had compassion of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. Look at that. They had their houses looted and mobs around their houses. They took it all so joyfully knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and enduring substance. And that was the faith. They knew that they had this hope in heaven. Hallelujah. They knew that it would all make sense when they saw Jesus. They didn't mind, therefore, when their houses were set on fire and so on. And that was the faith. They knew that they had this hope in heaven. Hallelujah. They knew that it would all make sense when they saw Jesus. Please turn your tape over. Thank you. 
They didn't mind, therefore, when their houses were set on fire and so on. So it's going to pass away anyway. It's been set fire to a few years early. That's all it was going to be set fire to anyway, eventually. And they were living in that revelation. Now, what's happened? From that day to this, however, Satan's stolen it away. Stolen it away. When we were first saved, you know, when I was first saved, the sheer joy of knowing I was saved was everything I needed. I used to say to the Lord, Lord, I don't care now what happens. I don't care if I'm never happy again. I don't care if you never give me anything. I don't care if everything goes wrong. Just to know I'm saved is wonderful. Lasted about three weeks. <laughs> and after three weeks, God, I want this. God, I want that. Why haven't you given me this? And, and what's happened? That joy, that contentment in God was snatched away by the devil. So that many Christians become occupied with the things of the world and they're more important. Nothing is more important than the fact you're saved. I mean, you've been saved. That's the most glorious thing of all. And God actually says this. When you were yet a sinner, God did the best for you. The thing that was impossible, he did it for you. And then he goes on to say, now you're saved, won't he also give you all things? Of course. If he can do the greater, can't he do the lesser? Of course he can. Now, what's happened to them? At first, they didn't mind all their goods being stolen, everything being burnt down around them. They were absolutely rejoicing. But now, now they're slightly older in the faith. Now it's hard. And look what he has to say to them, verse 35. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence. So everyone else is going after the devil. Everyone else is happy with religion. Everyone else is doing this. They're thriving. They're thriving. So what are you going to do? Go through a major crisis? Now, well, the unbelieving friends I've got seem to be doing all right. I don't seem to have the happiness they've got. He says, don't you throw away your former confidence, which has great recompense of reward. Look, verse 36. For you have need of patience, that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. And that's the testing. You have need of patience. There will be a testing time through it. You just have to look at the life of Paul. The things Paul went through. Honestly, oh, can, I, what I want to do, I want to take three passages and look at a few things that Paul went through. And at the end, compare that with the general attitude today. And you'll find you come to an amazing conclusion. Let's go to Corinthians, first of all. <clears throat> well, actually, speaking about Paul, you go to Corinthians. Like, can I just read you another little passage? I'll be on to Corinthians just a second. Can I, you go to Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians 1. Do you remember another church? It wasn't just the Hebrews. Do you remember another church that went through it? A church that Paul had spent three weeks teaching the word of God to. The Thessalonian church. Do you remember? He taught them thoroughly and they thought they knew what he taught them. But just as I was passing, I turned to this passage and it brought it back to my mind. Can I just read you a little passage? Don't you turn to it. In 2 Thessalonians. Look what he says. Verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind, nor troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you. Now, isn't this funny? They thought they believed the doctrine that he'd given them. But someone had obviously written a letter or had visited them saying, oh, by the way, Paul's changed his mind about this. Oh, Paul's changed his mind. Hey, Paul's changed his mind. Uh, dear Erastus here has told us. 
that he's uh, changed his mind. You sure he's changed? Oh, definitely. I've heard him say it himself. Yes, I was in, sitting in the talk when he totally contradicted the things that he said. Oh, and all of a sudden, this wildfire spread through the church. You see? Oh, Paul says, oh dear, oh dear, so the things he taught us weren't right. He writes to say to them, listen, he says, don't you be troubled in your mind. Don't you be troubled by an apparent letter or word from us. You've got to believe what you believe. Right? Your faith should be so firm that even if I do change my mind, you'll know what you've got to write. That's really what he's got to say. But how many Christians do you know who are in that position? I mean, how many? What you've got to do is know what you know. Do you see? You must know the truth about what you, you've got. So that even those that you trust, if they change their minds, you will still stand absolutely firm. Paul was in that revelation. Now look at him. Paul knew certain things. Now look what came against him. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I mean, it's terrible. Some people want the ministry of Paul. Well, they can keep it. Dear, oh dear, the things he went through. Verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. He said, there's one thing I'm rich in. It's the sufferings of Christ. I know what he went through, he says. So our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Suffering and consolation. And whether we be afflicted, afflicted. I mean, there's pain in that word. To be afflicted of something. It is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer. Yeah. Or whether we be comforted is. Comforted. It is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so shall you also be of the consolation. We would not have you ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia. This is what he says. That we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch as that we despaired even of life. Isn't that staggering? The pressure that Paul actually went. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, he says, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God that raiseth from the dead. Through the sufferings they learnt not to trust themselves. We'll be dealing with that tomorrow morning. Who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. And you see, all the affliction that I've been through, but God delivered us. And so he says, I'll tell you from my personal experience, God gets you through things like that. He got us through and he'll get us through again. Wonderful. What he didn't do was collapse saying, well, I must be in the wrong revelation. Right? He didn't. You don't find Paul having a major crisis because he really did know what he knew. Right? Every single Christian would be devil-proof if they were in that glorious position. You see it again in 2 Corinthians 4. I mean, he really labors it in 2 Corinthians. Look at this, verse 7. And every time there's a spiritual explanation, it's glorious, this stuff. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, he says, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side. Yet not distress. Wonderful. Got trouble, but it's the way we get through it. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Wonderful. How many Christians do you know could take this sort of pressure and still remain glorious Christians, still stunning at the end? 
I don't think there are too many. Many Christians are living, you know, in the comfort of the world at the moment, hoping that God won't deal with their lives in any sort of way. We've got to be as tough as this, it seems to me. One last verse uh, with Paul, and this sums it up, how we got through. In Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.12, here is the secret. Verse 12, very important verse. 2 Timothy 1.12. For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. You see that? I know whom I believe, I know the one I put my trust in, and am persuaded, I love that word, persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. You imagine what he suffered, the rejection, the scorn, right? the persecution from every side. And you imagine those Christians around. Oh, there are some awful Christians around. They're so right. They're so plausible. Right? Undoubtedly, there were Christians who said to him, Paul, you say you're speaking the words of God. Look what's happened. I mean, really, do you think? I mean, here you are, you're on your way to Rome, and you have a major shipwreck. That can't be God. Can't you just hear them? That's what you'd have today. You know, but the, oh, come on. God obviously isn't in it. Is he? Because if he were in it, you wouldn't have had uh, a shipwreck on the way, would you? You know, that's the theory today. That if God's in it, it will all go smooth. If God wants you to have that house, it will all go smooth. Boom, 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 boom. And there's always someone who'll give you the testimony to say, yes, that's absolutely right. <laughs> oh, that's what happened with me. I exchanged contracts three days before I saw the house. <laughs> <laughs> They've always got a nice testimony. There's always someone there to bring you into bondage. I did, by the way. My, my house went through in eight days, I think it was. It was absolutely staggering. But beloved, oh, so that means my house is right, does it? Not necessarily. God isn't the only one that opens and closes doors, you know. Satan can also do it. You do know that, don't you? And can you imagine today, if Paul was alive, why he'd be having people in certain movements around Britain, they'd be writing to him saying, listen, if God was with you, you wouldn't have all the trouble you're having. It's obvious that God isn't with you. Look at that. And in fact, when he was locked up, many people would say, ha, 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 that just shows it, you see. God stopped him preaching. Can you hear it today? This is how false our faith has become. You see? And undoubtedly, he got all the Job's comforters around so right. You read the book of Job sometimes. Job didn't have a leg to stand on. They were so plausible. Their theology was so acceptable. So right. Well, Job, you know, if God was with you, you'd be really blessed on every side. He can't be with you, can he? And poor old Job, if he hasn't got enough problems to put up with, that comes on him as well. You see? I know a woman, she rang me last week. She's sick. Right? She's got some colon trouble. Right? She's sick. And someone heard that she was sick, has written her a letter, saying, oh, uh, dear sister, I'm sure there's a root cause in this. And I feel it might have to do with your relationship with so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. And in fact, I don't think you'll be healed until you get right with so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so. Okay, the woman might be right, but it's not helpful, is it? The woman's sick. Doesn't she have enough trouble? You see? And, the, and she's getting advice from every side now. What? Why is she sick? Actually, she might just be sick. You know, I mean, it, there is such a thing as sickness. I know it's hard to believe, but sometimes there isn't a spiritual causation for the thing. You might just be sick. 
And these people bring you into bondage, and they bring themselves into bondage. My wife actually was on the phone two evenings ago to someone who rang up from upcountry, you know, and sort of saying, well, I'm, I've got this slight problem. Very minor problem, you see. And my wife said, well, you should go and get it examined. Oh, no, I know it's spiritual. My wife said, well, why don't you go and get it checked out first for the physical? Well, I know it's spiritual. And my wife said, well, it's so simple to put right, you know. And the fun thing is, if it's spiritual, then even though it's put right, it should still continue, shouldn't it? If it's spiritual. Oh, there's a lot of gobbledygook in these days of us all this. And Christians gradually getting into the position where they're on the verge of a nervous breakdown. If Paul had done that, he would have stopped ministering. He had it worse than anyone. Every problem that came, he came his way. Beaten up, stoned, he died at one point, didn't he? And was resurrected, right? Even though he was resurrected, nevertheless, oh well. Well, God's been good to him. Right? Now he's been arrested in prison. By the way, isn't it glorious, God's plan through prison? You know the book of Ephesians was written in prison. If he hadn't been in prison, he would have gone and given it publicly. And we wouldn't have had it written down for us. Satan was laughing all the way to the bank when he got Paul arrested. Ha <laughs> ha, that stopped him. Oh, great. Oh, wonderful. And then he suddenly realized what he'd done. Because instead of just speaking to one small group, he wrote it out. We've been reading it for 2,000 years. Paul had to put up with that. Now, I tell you, a lesser man would have cracked under the strain. Because what Paul had was a brand new revelation. He had the Jews against him. He had the Gentiles against him. He had the Roman authorities against him. He had the religious Christians against him. The works came against him. But the thing about Paul was he really knew what he knew. We've got to be the same. We've got to be untouchable. That doesn't mean we're hard or closed down to alternatives. doesn't mean that. But we've got to have such an inner assurance that nothing can ever move us, you see. And he says here, I know whom I believed. And I'm persuaded. And by the way, both believed and persuaded in the Greek are perfect tenses. That may mean nothing to you, but it's a very important thing. Let me tell you what a perfect tense is. A perfect tense is something that's happened in the past with consequences that continue through to the present. It's like a footprint in the sand. When I go down to Bognor Beach and I see a footprint in the sand, someone has trodden on that spot. They did it some time ago, but the consequences of their action are still there. That's a perfect tense. It's a past tense with things that continue through to the present. Now what he says is, in a moment of time in the past, I believed. And the results are that I'm still believing. I was persuaded at a point back there, and boy, I'm still persuaded. Wonderful. That's the position we're in. But many Christians can't say that. They say, well, I used to think that. But now, of course... Blah, blah, blah. It's terribly dangerous. I sometimes get phone calls from people and they say, Roger, I'm having such a dreadful time. I'm even doubting whether I'm saved now. You must have met people like that who say, well, I'm even doubting my salvation. Beloved, at that point, the writer to the Hebrews would say, cast not away thy former confidence. The word cast away in that Hebrew passage just comes to my mind is a nautical term for lightening a ship in a storm. You know, if the ship was in danger of sinking, they used to throw supplies over the side, you see, to try and survive, you see. But the problem was, if you were on a long journey, if you threw too many supplies over the side, you'd starve to death after the storm. And many Christians, you see, they're going through the difficulties and blow me down, they throw their faith over the side. 
the very thing that they need to get them through. That's not the time to throw away your faith. That's when you need your faith more than any other time. You see, and Paul absolutely stuck with it. And he says, I, be- I believe and I'm persuaded. What about that he is able to keep that which I've committed or deposited with him. He's able to keep that which I've deposited with him against that day. He had deposited his whole life, his whole eternity, his whole future with the Lord. And he's saying, I believe God's able to see me through. His advice is in what he went through. Now read verse 13 to 15. His advice is this to Timothy, hold fast the form of sound words. Hold them fast, hold them tight, because the devil will try and take them away. You stick with it, right? Which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost, which dwelleth in us. This thou knowest, all they which are in Asia be turned away from me. Now, isn't that staggering? All those in Asia who used to follow me have turned away from me. And the man, Paul, had to accept all of that. I mean, if anything was designed to actually undermine his faith, it's that. He knew what he knew. And there's nothing arrogant, you know, in in standing there and speaking authoritatively about what you know. And it might be that everything is going wrong around you, and everything seems to deny that which you know. But if you know it, you're absolutely untouchable. God wants us to have faith like that. You must have met those religious non-Christians who say, I think it's a bit arrogant ever saying that you are saved. Have you ever read them? I do think it's arrogant. I mean, I'm trying my best. That's what they say. I'm trying my best. And perhaps I'll make it and perhaps I won't, but that's up to God. But I'm trying my best. But I'd never say I was saved. And they always look at you like this. They're so right, so honourable. What did Jesus say, by the way? Jesus didn't say, oh, well, that's quite right. What he said was this. Don't rejoice that demons are subject to you. Rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Isn't that wonderful? Right? And there's the confidence that every single one of us should have. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Lovely. And you can rejoice in that. Now, beloved, everything you know and believe, you've got to know like that. Everything. If you don't, The devil will try and snatch it away. And sometimes to bring you into the faith that you say you've got, God will test the thing that you have faith in. I'm amazed how quickly Christians desert the truth. I tell you this, and you may disagree with this or, or may agree with it. I know from my own personal experience and from my study of the word of God that once a person is saved, they're always saved. Once they're truly born again, there is no way that they can lose that salvation. Now, I preach that. You may disagree. Fair enough. I know it from my personal experience. I know it so deeply within me, it's unshakable. A woman came to see me quite recently. And, uh, you know, she said she believed this, but she's one of those that goes with every wind of doctrine. You know, she hears the latest teaching, she goes in that way, and goes in this way, and all the rest. There's nothing solid about her. Now, whatever you believe, believe it solidly, please. Otherwise, you will be prey to the devil. She came to see me. She said, Roger, I've always been persuaded, you know, about eternal security. But I've got my grave doubts now. And I said, oh, really? I said, do do tell me. I'm very interested, you know. And something's persuaded you, has it? And I was hoping she'd say, well, I read a passage of scripture. And, you know, the scripture seemed to suggest that this was wrong. Because at least I can go away and study that and take it to the Lord and so on. And what she said then appalled me utterly, and it's typical of Christians today. She said, well, it's this book, actually. And she took out Hagen's book, I Believe in Visions. 
Now this, dear, dear King Hagen, this isn't a personal criticism. I couldn't believe it. From a faith man, this was staggering. In the book, he says, I always used to believe in eternal security, that once you were saved, you were always saved. Right? Along with many others. I'm so pleased that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' successor has just written a book called Once Saved, Always Saved. That's a very good book, if ever you want to read that. And then he said, but one night I had a dream. And I dreamed of hell, he said. And in hell was the wife of the Pentecostal pastor that I know. Or it's something like this, the story. And he dreamed that this woman was burning in hell. That's wishful thinking, I think. But uh, <laughs> he said, when I woke in the morning, I knew. You see, she's born again. But I, my vision was her of burning in hell. So I knew that eternal security was wrong. Now, isn't that pathetic? Isn't that about the most pathetic thing you've ever read? The fun thing was, if he'd had a vision of himself burning in hell, or a, a vision... A vision of himself sick in some way, because he's a good faith man, he would have said, I resist you, Satan, in the name of the Lord. Wouldn't he? He would have said, don't you let the Satan put thoughts like that in your mind? But now, here, because it was this woman, she was burning in hell, you see? He said, oh, well, my doctrine must be wrong. Forget the word of God, chuck the word of God out. Oh, I'm all wrong, I've had a vision. Really? The visions these people have, you know. I do find that the fear of the Lord is lacking in the church today. I, I mean, for seven years I went to meetings in London by a certain well-known American minister uh, who had these meetings. He was always telling us, you know, I've been to heaven again. Had another vision of heaven. And in heaven I saw two footprints and they were exactly my, the shape of my feet. Must have very odd feet to know that uh, they're the exact shape. And, you know, they exactly fitted in and things. And then you read Paul's experience. He says, I saw things that shouldn't be uttered. Paul had had a real experience of heaven and he could, wouldn't tell us about it. But today, oh, it's ten a penny. Oh, you've been to heaven as well, so have I. <laughs> what happened to you when you're in heaven? And they all share it. I think it lacks credibility to me. I don't think it's the real thing. Rather like the woman who was always talking about her experiences of God and then one day she had an experience of God and she never spoke about it again. I think that's the truth. You say, I really do. But anyway, this woman said, well, you see, that's, that's it. I can't believe in eternal security now. And that was, I said to her, it's pathetic. I said, this terrible, where does it say in scripture that visions are, should be used to change doctrine? But that's how unstable many people are, you see. Something will happen, something in their experience will happen, which contradicts their faith. Oh, well, my faith must be wrong. Who says that? Surely the word of God must have greater effect than your experience. Surely it must. Well, it does, and we'll be seeing that in the next few days when we start building up your faith and so on. It's very important. Our belief and our knowledge have got to be based in the word and the word only. Another passage that talks about this, in Romans 16, there's a passage. Now, I quoted that. I gave some talks on spiritual warfare um, at uh, Wigan. I think some of you may have heard those tapes. This passage is one that I read at that time. Verse 19, Romans 16, verse 19. Look at this. For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. I'm glad therefore on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good, simple concerning evil. And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Now do you see, what the devil attacks you, now what determines whether he's under your feet and bruised? 
whether you're wise concerning that which is good. The word wise and wisdom is misunderstood in our society today. Wise and wisdom, we think it's philosophical. You know, oh, he's a philosopher, he's wise. Or we say he's a philosopher, he's very unwise, don't we? We would say that. The word wisdom in the ancients didn't mean that. It meant skilled. Skilled. It was used of embroidery. It's funny, this. But it was used of needlewomen. You see, they used to sew. And if they could do it well, they were called wise. A good uh, carpenter was called wise. He was skilled, you see. And the word wisdom came to mean skill in living. Skill in living. Skill in using what you know correctly. That's what it was used. The wisdom books are interesting. You see, they're the books that tell you how to live. Ruth is a wisdom book. You've got the law... But Ruth tells you how it was outworked in life. Daniel is a wisdom book. It's not in the prophets. Isn't that interesting? All the others are prophets. Daniel isn't a prophet. Daniel is a wisdom book because he tells you how to live the life. Wisdom means skill in living. You see? Now what this says is to be wise about that which is good isn't just knowing a thing or two. It's that you put it into operation in your life daily. And as you do that, the devil's under your feet and bruised before long. It's wonderful. I'll give you an example. You see, my sister, well, I've got two sisters. One is uh, very intelligent and non-sportive. The other is totally unintelligent, non-intelligible, and very sportive, right? She's, she's very nice. But she always says, when the brains were given out, I was behind the door. That's what she says, you see, and your neighbors and myself got them all. That's what she says, you see. She's more intelligent than she makes out, actually. But my sister, who's the intelligent one, she's not very practical, you know, at all. And years ago, she learned to drive, you see. And she used to go out with her instructor, BSM. She likes to do things officially. BSM is the official one. So she went out, she had all the lessons. She passed the test first time. Trouble is, she hasn't driven from that day to this. She hasn't touched a car. You see, she likes being, she's, I mean, <laughs> my grandmother's name was Ryle, you know, and I have an eccentric American cousin who um, is a millionaireess who thinks it should be royal, proves that we're descended from royalty. And she spent all her money traveling around Britain trying to prove that we're descended from royalty. Well, when I see my sister, I think it might be true. Um, she wouldn't dream of driving a car. She likes to sit on the back, in the back seat, to be driven everywhere, you see. And uh, now there it is. Now on paper, she can drive. She's passed the test. She could actually get into a car, heaven forbid. But she could actually get into a car, and if she was stopped by the police, and he said, show me your driving license, she could show him. But you see, she's not skilled. She hasn't actually learned. We all know, don't we? You learn to drive a car after you pass the test, not before. You see? And my sister has never touched a car. Now, the truth is that most Christians are like that over their faith. They have a certain faith, but they never live it out. This doesn't say, if you know a lot, you'll be all right. What it says is that you actually outwork that faith. That in difficult circumstances, you put that faith into operation. And you will find that when that's resisting the devil. He'll flee from you. You've got to be wise concerning that which is good, but a sheer simpleton concerning that which is evil. You see? Very important. And that's actually what this particular passage says. You see? This is saying, know what you know, so that in the crisis, you still know it. And that's the place that every single person 
must reach this. This is actually the whole message of Hebrews chapter 11. As you know, I think I dealt with it sometime when I was up with you. But this is it. You see, Hebrews chapter 11 doesn't contain outstanding people. It contains people like you and me, with ordinary faults, right? Ordinary problems. But the thing about them was, they were utterly persuaded. You think of Noah. You think of the trouble. He's in the list. You think of what... I mean, not a drop of rain had ever fallen on the earth. A mist used to come up and water the... There'd never been any rain. He was in land. Started building a boat, because God told him to. Can you imagine what happened? For 120 years, he would have had all this... Oh, come on, let's go for a laugh. How's it going, Noah? <laughs> Just imagine it. Oh, darling, no, don't laugh. Shh. Don't laugh. You can just imagine it. You see, everyone taunting him. He wouldn't live as the rest of them were living. You know? Oh, why aren't you going to join us then tonight, Noah? No, thank you. Well, oh, too busy on the boat. <laughs> Very funny, you see? But I think uh, he preached faithfully. He preached and preached and preached. The thing about him was he knew what God had called him to. He knew. And everyone else laughed, but he knew. You see? That's the sort of persuasion I think is implied in this title. How to know what you know. Right? So that under pressure, you're still there. I think these people, by the way, were very evil. They must have seen all the animals coming. Have you ever thought of that? As they stood there taunting, now suddenly they found all these animals heading towards kangaroos jumping in. And they, they would have seen it all. I mean, Noah told them that that would happen. They must have seen They were without excuse, this generation. And then they saw the door by itself swing shut on that terrible day. And seven days later, wasn't it, the rains started to fall. Noah had to know what he knew. I wish we had more people like him. Oh, he had faults, right? I mean, the first thing he did, plant a vineyard, get drunk, didn't he? Very first thing, there were other problems as well, which are hidden in the Hebrew, which I'll speak about some other time. But I mean, he wasn't an spectacular man, but he was a man fully persuaded. And that's why he's in the list. Moses, you know, was a man very similar to us, wasn't he? But he was persuaded. He was so persuaded, he gave up all the wealth of Egypt so that he could join his people, who were living as slaves. He had to be pretty persuaded. And then he, he messed it up. Do you remember the old fisticuffs and he overdid it? Right? Mr. T and all the rest. He, you know, he, he overdid it. And, and then he went. But you see, he didn't give up. And then God could actually use him. You'll find this is the way of all the people of faith. It isn't that they had an easy life. When the trouble hit, they were so fully persuaded that they stuck with the thing. Do you think David had an easy life? He didn't. It's the unbeliever that has the easy life. That's what the Bible says. God's good to the unbeliever. He lets them have a good life because he knows what their eternity is like. But it says, David himself wrote, many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers him from them all. It's wonderful. Have you ever read Psalm 73 in your perambulations through the Bible? Have you ever read it? Can we just turn to it quickly? Yeah, I've got five minutes left. I can't believe it. Now, Psalm 73. Can I just read uh, uh, some of this? Because it's, it's quite staggering. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, he says, look at that. My feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. Neither are they played like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. 
They have more than their heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how does God know? And is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I've cleansed my heart in vain, he says. Right? And here's a temporary dip. God forgives you for a temporary dip. Uh, well, Lord, what am I? So stupid. I'm trying to walk upright. Nay, they're living in clover. All I get is trouble, he says. And I've washed my hands in innocency. For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. You see? And I tell you very often, that is the way of things. You look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah had everyone against him. He had prophets speaking, contradicting his word. But he knew. He knew what he knew. He knew what God had called him to. And we live in a day, quite honestly, when we've got to bring this nation back to the word of God. We've got to do it. We will be spoken against like Victoria Gillick was spoken against yesterday. Right when she lost her case in the House of Lords by three to two. And all the people up there saying, we're jolly glad. This would have caused trouble and all the rest. That woman had to stand. We've got to stand for these things. Right? Elijah wasn't very good at this. He was one chap who eventually got through, but he wasn't good. Do you remember? He had the magnificent thing on Mount Carmel. Do you remember that? And the next day, Jezebel hears about it. She writes him a letter. I'm going to get you. Oh, no! And all the time, I mean, he'd just seen the total defeat of the prophets of Baal. He goes running. Oh, Jezebel's after me. I know the feeling, may I say. <laughs> Jezebel's after me. And one little thing, and suddenly he's all jittery. Oh, dear. And he sits in this cave, and he says, God, it's too much. Take my life. Take me now. I've finished. I've had it. Destroyed all these people, and one woman gets him on the run. And God says, what's the matter? And he says, Lord, I've really stood for you. And look at the mess I'm in. That's what he says. I, I, only I am left. And then he said, God, take me, please, so that not even I'm left. <laughs> right? And God has said, there are 7,000 others, you know. But it's interesting, that little phrase, I, only I am left. Micah uses exactly, don't turn to it. But you know, in Micah 3, he uses exactly the words of Jeremiah. Compare Micah with Jeremiah. I'm sorry, with uh, Elijah there, right? And notice, by the way, Elijah isn't in Hebrews 11. He's in James, a man of like passion like us. Isn't that unless lovely, isn't it? Praise the Lord. But dear Micah uses the same phrase, I, only I, he says. He, however, has the right perspective. First, this is what he says, Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err. This is Micah. Can you imagine standing on his soapbox, raving? Right? At all the prophets. This is what God says about you false prophets. Right? That bite their, with their teeth and cry, Peace! And he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Therefore, night shall be unto you, that you shall not have a vision, and it shall be dark unto you, and you shall not divine, and the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. Then shall the seers be ashamed, and the diviners confounded. Yea, they shall all cover their lips.